You're listening to the Westchester Podcast, an official podcast of the New York City Church of Christ. Amen. Good morning, church. It is a great fall morning. Um, summer, it seems, has come to a close, and we're moving into a different season. I know that uh, many of us have got our kids back in school. We're back to work. I know for me, it was back to work last week, and I just struggled through the whole week. But amen. God has blessed us. This Friday is going to be a turning point in our nation's history. It will bring hundreds of thousands of people into the streets across America. There will be pandemonium, the news stations on every outlet will cover it. There will be hysteria. On Friday, the iPhone 8 will be released. It is the 10th year since the world was introduced to the iPhone. And at that time, in, uh, on June 28, 2007, uh, people were waiting outside in lines for this thing. And the news dubbed it the Jesus phone because it could do so many things. We have prayer. That's another type of Jesus phone. But um, at the time, Steve Jobs, when he, he walked on stage before he was about to give the presentation, said... Guys, you have to remember this moment because nothing will ever be the same again. Teens, there used to be a thing called a payphone that you used to put quarters in to make a call when you were out. There was a time when, believe it or not, you would have to get up and walk across the room to turn on the television. I remember when I first started seeing people with Bluetooth, and I didn't understand what was going on. I got off the train, and there were all these people talking to themselves. And I was thinking, what has, what's going on? Is this something in the water? What do I need to... So, technology has come so far. We have the iPhone, the iMac, the iPad, iDolls. Maybe you guys trying to tell us something here. We do have iPhone worship, right? We get up in the morning and we bow down to our screens. We get up and we fellowship with our family and friends in the temple courts of Facebook. And heaven forbid we should lose our faith and pick up one of those pagan phones, the Samsung or the Android. I remember my, I gave my daughter a Samsung phone. She's like, Dad, did, did I do something wrong? And it becomes this, Almost people get fanatical about it, like different denominations, right? But look, why do I bring this up? There's nothing evil about phones. But what's incredible is how one idea, one man's vision, really changed the world as we know it. You go on a train, everybody's got their heads in their phones. From his ideas, from his words, to actual being. We know that God is the original creator. Because he took nothing and made it the world that we live in. He is, the, uh, he is the originator, the wisdom, the creativity. He's the one that had his original thoughts and his words come into action. Let there be light. And there was light. And God has put that same spirit in man. And man has been dreaming and doing the same thing. When you look in Genesis, I think it's, it's six times that there is a phrase like, let there be light. And then it was. 
And what that phrase means is let something exist. Let something exist out of nothing. Let my words become flesh. Man has been doing the same thing, trying to invent like God. Let there be, let there be. There's been innovation after innovation after innovation. But really, the power that we have as Christians is when God's words become flesh in our lives. So the title of my message today is Words Becoming Flesh. Why should we care if the words become flesh? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This is the Bible talking about Jesus, so let's break this down a little bit. In the beginning was the Word. This word here in the Greek is logos. It means the logic, the intelligence, the design, the blueprint of the world that created our existence and the world that we live in. The logic of God. The understanding of how things were created. The supreme intelligence. It says he was with God in the beginning. This logic is wisdom personified. Now get this, it says through him all things were made. Everything that has ever been made came through this wisdom that was with God, and it says that that was the light of all mankind. So if we're to look at what this world is, get the blueprint of how our life should be, what it means to be human in this world, what God wants us to live like, we've got to look to the Word. In verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, the logic, the blueprint, the design of this world came in human form. It became flesh and it walked among us in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus personifies all of God's Word. That's why Jesus is important. That's why looking to the Word is important. See, for the early Jews... The Bible, the Scriptures, the Torah, it meant life. Because God was showing His love by showing them how to live the best life possible on this earth. It meant they needed to discover, they needed to study, they needed to go deep. See, sometimes we can look at our faith like a political party. Which team are we on? What are you for or what are we against? And that's what defines us. Sometimes the world knows us not by our love, but more by what we are against than what we are for. And we've got to express that love and show that love. But back in the, uh, in the early centuries, the word was revered. No one had a Bible in Jesus' day. You had to walk sometimes miles to the temple. And then the, the, uh, the rabbi would open up the scrolls and then he would read from the scrolls in the center of the room. The word was revered. It wasn't from here, like in, in this kind of situation. The podium was in the middle, and the congregation would encircle the word. And then at the same time, there were different uh, ceremonies where the, uh, the rabbi would invite the congregation to dance with the Torah, dance around the word of God, because it was held up, it was revered. And then the role of the rabbi grew, because as people encircled the Torah, they would be there discussing what it meant. 
It wasn't a situation where someone would come up, speak, and tell you what it was, and then you walk away. Everybody was a part of the discussion. So they would talk to figure out, how do we put flesh on these words? How do we get as close to the original meaning and the original intent as possible? They would make this, read it, make decisions about it, and they'd put it into their lives. They knew there was always something more to discover. Always something more to learn. Because life brings you circumstances and challenges and situations, and we've got to figure out, what do I do with this? How do I handle this? And they would always go back to the Word to figure it out. There is a, a, a saying, I think it comes from the Midrash, that the Torah has 70 faces. Each verse has 70 different faces. So you look at it, you turn it, you study it. You look at it, you turn it, you study it. And so there's so many different ways of, of finding out what the Scriptures are. It's, one of them says the, there are 70 faces of the Torah. Turn it around and around, for everything is in it. Everything is in the Word of God. When the Jews looked at how to decipher the Torah, there's four different stages. I'm not going to say the names because I'll mess them up and then TJ will have to correct me. But the four different stages were the plain historical, first of all, the plain, the historical and grammatical meaning of the text. And then you would look at the, uh, the, the meaning which was only hinted at in the text, that there was a suggestion of this, and to study that. And then there was the implicit meaning of the text, the things that it actually meant. And then there was the esoteric meaning, the hidden meaning of the text. And so with these seven, di 70 different faces and these four different levels of looking at a text, there was so much depth that you could get out of the Scriptures. So much discovery. So much to explore. In today's, cult, in today's church, we should be looking to the cultural context, the historical context. Why? So that we can learn to live these words out and put them into our flesh. When we leave midweek services, do we leave after having deep discussions about the Word of God? Are we exploring the deeper themes? Are we looking at it and turning it? Or do we just accept the one or two things that have been said about it and then we leave? We've got to go deeper. The Jews would have been studying 39 books of the Old Testament. Some say as much as a 2,600-year uh, span. Book written on different continents, by different people, in different stages of life. Poems, history books, wisdom literature, all bound up in the man Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 4, verse 15. In Luke 4, verse 15, talking of Jesus, it says, He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed, handed to him, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him 
and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Jesus walks into the synagogue. He reads from the book of Isaiah in the synagogue around the Jewish people and tells them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am he. I am the one these scriptures are talking about. In other scriptures, he says, before Abraham was, I am. This made them crazy. Because Jesus was saying, all of the stuff you've been studying with all of these teachers and all of these rabbis for all of these years are talking about me. That's why we've got to study the Bible. That's why we've got to make these words, put these words in our flesh. Matthew 5, verse 17. See, if we study Him, it's not religion. It's not just going to church. It's about getting to the deeper truths of the Scriptures, the Bible, and how to live them out in our lives. If you're not used to studying the Bible, you've got to at least admit, if you have the opportunity to study the blueprint of the universe, our existence, and who we are on this earth, that's an opportunity you've got to take up. You've got to at least explore that, no matter what your preconceived ideas. So here, Jesus goes on. And so he makes these statements. And then in uh, Matthew 5.17, he says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Back then, where people talked that this was a common phrase, abolishing the law or fulfilling the law. If you abolish the law, or if you made an interpretation, or a rabbi made an interpretation of the scriptures that was far away from the truth, they were said to have abolished the law. Like, you're missing the point. You're not getting it, Right? And if someone uh, fulfilled the law or made something, uh, a comment that was close to the law, to the original intent, then they would have said to have fulfilled the law. Jesus is saying, look, I've not come to abolish it, the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. I'm a living, breathing example of everything you've studied so far. Look at it in me. And then he goes on and he pushes the envelope in verse 20, 21 onwards. You hear him say, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Or some version of that. He says it six times. And then he goes on to talk about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, an eye for an eye, loving your enemies. He goes deeper. And what he says is, look, it's not enough just not to murder. Now you can't call your brother fool. It's not enough to say, I'm not going to commit adultery. But every single woman you look at and desire who is not your wife, you are committing adultery with. He starts to push the envelope and saying, look, this is a new teaching. You've heard it said this way, but now this is where you're going to go. And just out of interest, for those of you who do want to go deeper, I want to challenge you, here's the takeaway, to study out verses 38 to 40. And study out, what Jesus actually meant, the historical context of what Jesus actually meant when he said to turn the other cheek. Study that out, it will blow your mind. It's just one of the things that, that have inspired me. But here, Jesus keeps going on. He keeps pushing the envelope. Then he goes on and you look through his life. In the Old Testament scriptures, there were very clear scriptures about what is unclean. Lepers were unclean, right? But then Jesus goes towards lepers and touches lepers. There were scriptures about how women were treated, but then Jesus would sit with the Samaritan woman and have a conversation with her. Jesus was always pushing the envelope of what was understood about the scriptures during that time. 
He was doing something new. Are we okay with new things as a church? Are we okay with approaching things from a different way? Or does it rustle our feathers too much? We know the way our service goes the same way, right? We can predict what's going to happen. But what happens if we mix that up? Some of us, we've come from two different ministries and we've melded and and merged our ministries and it's been going great. But what happens when it looks a little different from what you're used to? Are we open to that? Because Jesus came and disrupted everything. And sometimes for us to really get the message, we need a disruption. Because church as normal sometimes can can dull our spirituality, can dull our excitement. What new things could we be doing? This is why we need to study Jesus, because I think sometimes we get to this place where we like things in a nice little box. Like we would like the Jesus infomercial. Right? Three easy steps, three easy payments, follow this formula, and you get to go to heaven and know the truth. It doesn't work that way. We've got to open our minds up. You know, for me, sometimes it's our backgrounds. Our backgrounds can get in the way of us understanding who Jesus is. I know for me, when I studied the Bible, I wasn't one of those people who cried at the cross. Like when people, and and for a long time in my faith, I haven't been able to connect emotionally to Jesus that way. And it has a lot to do with my background. You know, I saw Jesus as kind of a little, you know, these 12 disciples, sandals on their feet, renegade. It was a little bit hippie-ish to me. And I'm just being honest. I didn't connect with that. Part of it's my background. Look, a lot of my background, I I grew up with um, African grandparents who were immigrants. So they came to England, and at that time, you know, there were still no notices on the doors, uh, no Jews, no blacks, no dogs. So they came to England, and they were like, look, we don't have time to, to, to start a revolution. We don't have time to protest. We need to work hard, get our education, and get on with life and provide a better life for our kids and our grandkids who are coming. And so then I lived with them. And so I was, you know, two generations removed, and I was in college, and things like protests would, you know, we need a protest, or this is wrong, and I'm reading all these different books. And um, the conversations with my grandparents would go something like this. Oh, Grandfather, we should protest. He goes, what, what are you protesting for? Well, it's wrong, our freedoms, and, and they're taking our freedoms, and, 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 you know, we need to protect them. Do you have a job? No. Do you have a house? No. You live in my house, so you have no freedom. So what are you, what, what are you uh, protesting for? Go to school, get your degree, get a job, and then go protest. That's the background I came from. And then my, my grandmother was no help. She said, Teresa, this boy wants to be a hippie. And then she would look at me disappointed. Foolish boy, don't be stupid. Go to school, stop protesting. That's where I came from. So, I understood the authoritarian God. The God that told you, do this, and you did it, and you obeyed. I understood the practical God. But I did not understand, you know, this lovey-dovey Jesus revolutionary thing that was going on. And for some of us, our experience and our background can stop us understanding the true Christ. Our experience and our knowledge don't necessarily point us to the truth. 
See, once I started to let go of these experiences, and once I started to really look at Jesus for the social justice stand that he took, releasing the oppressed, fighting for the poor, releasing prisoners, then it started to make a little bit more sense to me. I was always into those movies, you know, what do they call them? Swords and sandals, right? Guys with swords, sandals, fighting the uh, mighty oppressor. So Jesus started to speak to me in that way. What's stopping you from really getting to understand the true Jesus? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The thing to understand about Christ in verse 3 It says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. This, to me, is exciting. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Now my quiet time is not just a quiet time, it's an investigation. It's an adventure for the truth. I'm okay with being thrown off balance because when Jesus talked in his day, he threw people off balance. He got them off balance in terms of what their preconceived notions of what it meant to follow God was. This is not about religion. This is about seeking the truth, having a faith, a way of living. I can look past what, how other people have presented Jesus, how, what my experience has been, and really want to get to the truth. I want to know more. I want to put this to the test. I want to know the cultural context, the historical context. I want to go deeper because this is the exact radiance of God's glory. How could I not want to know that? Where are you in your walk with God? Are you seeking the deeper truth? Point number two, let the Word dwell in you richly. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. One of my favorite passages in the Scripture. It says, let the New International Version says, let the message of Jesus dwell among you richly as you teach, admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. The New Living Translation says, let the message about Christ in all of its richness, fill your lives. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Let it live in you so we can have a better life. But this also brings into the question, what other words can live in me? What other words can I accept into my heart? You see, sometimes... We are given words, we accept words, we carry words in our spirit, in our minds that are detrimental to our spiritual and our mental health. They have manifest themselves in our day-to-day lives in ways that is not good. And these negative words have become in our flesh and how we live. Many of you guys, and I'm thankful, prayed for my mom when she was sick. And what had happened was, I got a phone call that from my brother that she was in hospital, she had an allergic reaction, her tongue had swollen so she could not breathe. They rushed her to the hospital, Uh, they had to put a tube down her throat and put her on a ventilator, sedate her so she was knocked out for three days. We didn't know what had happened, the doctors didn't know what had happened. Eventually everything calms down, they they release her, they still hadn't figured it out. She came to spend uh, time with us uh, this summer and uh, we took her to see uh, Mark Sanders, who's also, who's also a doctor, he's an elder in the church. And Mark was able to do these tests, and he was able to figure out uh, that 
what she has, the symptoms are very close to Lyme disease. And so that's what he thinks it is, and she has to go back to a doctor and get these final tests. But what happens with Lyme disease is that there's a tick that embeds into your skin, and it leaves a bacteria in your skin that causes the disease. And the disease uh, affects, uh, can affect your nervous system, your joints, you get fatigued, you get tired. And many people, because there's not a proper diagnosis, have this stuff for years and it goes untreated. So for, for, it, for us to get that suggestion was, was a blessing. But also the other thing about it is that the longer she's had it, and she's, if, if it is true she's had it for years, the longer it takes to heal. I think spiritually, without the word dwelling in us, some of us have spiritual Lyme disease. Because words that people have said, words that we've heard, we've allowed into our hearts and into our minds, and over years we've just embedded them in who we are. And we respond in different ways, we act in different ways because of these words that are harmful to us. What words have your parents said to you that were maybe damaging? Maybe it was a teacher, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Wounds can run deep. Maybe um, it's even your spouse. What words have people said? What words have you seen in the media? What messages have you seen out there that make you feel less than or insecure or put fear into your spirit? I remember at six years old, I overheard two of my friends talking about me. And at six years old, they were saying, oh, do you like Robert? No, I don't like Robert. Oh, let's not play with him. And it seems silly that I'm in my 40s and I still remember that. But then I was like, I've got to be nice to people. And so it created this people-pleasing spirit within me. From such a young age, what words are in your heart that Satan is using to pull you down? Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God looks over you and he rejoices over you with singing. He delights in you. There are so many other uplifting scriptures that we should be putting in our hearts. God rejoices whatever they've said, whatever she said, your mother, father, friend, husband, wife, whatever made you feel less than, not good enough. God is rejoicing over you and we need to take those words and put them into our hearts. You were beautifully and wonderfully made. Brothers, we hear so much, you need to man up and stop being so emotional. The shortest words in the scripture, in the Bible, Jesus wept was emotional. Jesus was in touch with his emotions. We are emotional beings. And sometimes it's not the words that have been put in you, but it's the words that you did not hear. See, I had no father who was around. I had a stepfather who was there, and, and so really, for, in my upbringing, I really didn't have another man who affirmed me as a man until I became a Christian. And so... I'd have to affirm myself with competitiveness, with comparison, with striving, because there was no other man who said, you know what, you're going to be okay. Recently, my stepfather, I spoke to him on the phone, I haven't spoken to him in years, stuff with family, 
and um, he said, you know, you've done a great job. And it broke me up. As a grown man, it broke me up because I hadn't heard those words. We need encouragement. The Bible says, encourage one another daily. This is part of that wisdom. We need encouraging words to lift up our spirits and help us put God's words in our heart. The other day I went to the uh, Apple store. (laughs) Speaking of Apple, how it's infiltrated my life. Because we had to fix my daughter's computer. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, they do a pretty good job, but sometimes it's a nightmare, right? And they send you to the genius bar. And sometimes a genius is not so much of a genius, right? But Aaron works there. Aaron Selkridge, who's one of the brothers, he works there. So got an appointment with Aaron, went over there, and we, we had all this stuff. And it was good. I went there with my daughters. And, you know, it's never convenient. It was a late evening. I was frustrated. I was tired. The kids were tired. But we were there. And so we had this interaction, Aaron helped us out, and then afterwards, you know, I've got to be honest, I'm not, I feel like we have a great family, I love my kids, but I'm always feeling like, man, I've got to be doing more, I've got to be figuring out, you know, I don't want to ever give the impression that I'm one of those fathers who's just got this. No, that's, you know, I need prayers, I need help, right? So we're there, and then Aaron texts me afterwards, he says, and this is his text, he said I could read it. He said, hey Robert, this is Aaron. I just wanted to say that I'm really happy I got the chance to work with you. And I want to say that I don't really know you or your family super well, but every time I see you and your daughters, I feel really inspired. Getting married is a big step. He's getting married soon. But being a father is even bigger. One of my dreams is is going to be to be a father, God willing. And if I have daughters, although I know you wouldn't know this because I'm not around you to tell you, I always think of you and your daughters and how I would like to be a dad like you if I ever have daughters. Seeing you and your daughter's friendship in the Apple Store almost made me cry. I hope you know how inspiring that is, especially as a man who hopes to be a role model himself one day. I felt like I had to share this. I know it's a lot, and I hope it doesn't come across weird, but I felt like people don't often tell others these positive things before it's too late or they forget. So I wanted to say something. He didn't know what I go through. But he's put the words in his heart. He's living them and putting those words into my heart. We need each other to encourage and lift each other up. See, because like the scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Sometimes we need help with the way we're thinking. See, because these negative thoughts can be like a prisoner that holds you in, that stops you seeing and makes you blind to God's potential and that that leave you oppressed. But we just read in Luke 4 that Jesus came um, because he had sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed. We've got to lift each other up. And finally, in closing... We've got to look at two things that can stop the Word of God dwelling richly in us. Luke chapter 2, verse 46. One of the things, well, let's just read this first. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. What was Jesus doing in the temple courts? While his parents were looking for him, listening to them, 
and most importantly, asking them questions. One of the things that will stop the word growing in our hearts and living uh, and living, dwelling in us richly is when we stop asking questions. Jesus, in the Bible, it said, asked 307 questions. He asked 307. He is asked 183 questions. How many does he directly answer? Three. Depending on how, much, how you look at it, as much as eight. But three questions he directly answers. The rest of the questions he answers with a question. Why? Because in Jewish tradition, when, uh, when uh, the student was studying from the rabbi, it wasn't just enough for the student to regurgitate information that he learned. The rabbi tested how smart and wise a student was by the questions that he asked. There is a tradition in Jewish culture of asking questions. That's why Jesus always answered a question with a question. It is said, uh, there's a phrase that, um, a Jew, that Jewish mothers, uh, attributed to Jewish mothers, that when their kids come back from school, you know, we ask, what did you learn today? But a Jewish mother will ask, what questions did you ask today? Because it shows your thinking. Not just, you're just taking information in. My youngest daughter, Jordan, man, she asks questions. And it can test our patience. Daddy, why? Daddy, why this? Daddy, why that? Daddy, I mean, I figured out that when she's in that cycle, the way to break the cycle is to ask her a question. Because, well, why do you think? And then she's, you know, she's stumped for about two minutes and then it starts again. But we've got to understand that these questions are searching for the truth. Questions bring you closer to the truth. They create a sense of intimacy with you as you get to the details of the Scriptures. They're like an onion. You peel one layer back and another layer back. It keeps you on your toes. It keeps you curious. It can be challenging. If you're asking questions with an unfiltered heart and an unfiltered mind, the Scriptures will challenge you. It will challenge your preconceived notions. Are you asking questions? Without questions... We've become arrogant. It means we already think we got this. It means we trust our experience and our understanding and our knowledge. And what happens is we get dull. And we can be infants in the word and not even know it. If we're going to become mature disciples, we've got to ask these questions. Because if you're not, I guarantee you, you're dull, you're getting bored. Who's ever been bored as a Christian? It's because you stopped asking some questions. It's because you stopped going deeper. And we don't have to have an answer for everything. We've got to be okay with not having an answer for everything. Let God do what He's going to do. Let God reveal it in His time. You can't dream without asking questions. Somebody asked, what would it be like to speak to a person miles away? We have the phone. Somebody asked, what would it be like for man to fly? We have flight. You can't dream unless you're asking questions. What can this church be like? What can my faith be like? How can we affect the world? The scripture has 70 faces. You've got to keep asking questions. And finally, words will not become flesh if we only see things as they are and not what they can be. Abraham 
when God said, you're going to be a father of many, knew he was old. But the scripture says he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and he still believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. We won't see words become flesh if we stop at just seeing the reality of today. We need to see the reality of today. We need to be honest. We need to see things the way that they are. But if we stop there, we will never dream and we will never be what God intends us to be. Without a dream, without vision, we will never get there. You know, some of us, I think it's easy for us to complain about things in the church. Now, some of those complaints are valid and reasonable, and thought through, and certain things have been neglected, whatever. I think that we've got to be honest about that. And so, I don't want to put out there that it's not okay to bring up these issues, because we need to do that. We're a family. But as we bring things up, we've also got to present a vision. We can't just talk about, well, this is wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong. We've got to be thinking about ways to make it better. See, here's the thing. We as a church can be in danger of resting on our laurels. I might be going a roundabout way to say this, but we take security in our church as having these strong relationships and these discipling relationships, and indeed other churches outside, this is what they know us for, this particular movement, this particular congregation, right? That's what we've known, known for. We know the one another scriptures. But is that what's really happening now? Are we taking what we have done and made it like it's happening right now? Now, there are reasons why it might not have been happening. Now, there's the reality. But in order for us to move forward, we've got to ask ourselves individually, Okay, and myself included. What would get me excited about being in that kind of relationship regularly again? What do I need to do in my heart to get excited about that? What does that look like? What words do we have to use? Maybe discipling relationships isn't it. Maybe whatever. But maybe we need to start to ask ourselves some questions, dream about what it can look like, and then go out there and start putting those things into practice. Because it doesn't always have to come from, from Jim, Teresa, the elders, the ministry leaders. Sometimes in some far-off region, in some Bible talk in the corner of the church, people are doing great stuff that we can learn from. But we have to start dreaming again. And not just looking at things as they are, but what they could be. We're also known, or we see ourselves as, the Matthew 28:18 church, we're making disciples of all nations. And yes, indeed, we've been baptizing some people. It's encouraging. You know, our Bible talk was uh, 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 blessed enough to baptize Lou. It's been, it's been awesome. But if it's not happening the way that it used to, if we're not seeing it the way that we used to, if we're focusing on what's not happening, the issues, because there's always going to be issues. Issues are like tissues. You pull one out, another one comes out. We just keep doing it. We can do that all day as a church, right? But unless we're trying to figure out what does, what's it going to look like for me to be excited about again? Because look, I've got to tell you, I'm tired. 
the job I do, I've got to be up really early in the morning. Sometimes I've got to be, I get home late. And sometimes going to extra things, it's like, ah, oh, one more thing. But I've got to ask myself, what does it look like for me? What will get me excited? What do I need to do in my faith? How do I need to grow? Where do I need to be humble in order to get to this place to be excited again? Church, we've got to be in a place where we put these words and God's words into our lives and let the word dwell in us richly. We have the blueprint to the universe. We have the blueprint to how to live life here on earth. It's time to go deeper. It's time to make God's words in our flesh, in our walk, and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Amen. You just listened to the Westchester Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit westchester.nyc.co.uk.